Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management. Welcome to the Richard Serrett Show on News Talk Saga 960 AM. All right. How is everyone? We've got Jody back behind the uh, the big audio board, twisting the knobs and the dials. Oh, I know they don't have knobs and dials anymore. I I understand. I'm. Uh, do you remember that Tim Hartman or sorry Phil Hartman routine from SNL when SNL was still funny? I'm just an unfrozen caveman, unfamiliar with your modern ways. Ah, uh, remember when SNL was funny? No, neither do I. Uh, speaking of Phil Hartman, do you know he was? Do you remember who, who Phil Hartman was? Does anyone out there know? Do you remember? No. Yes, you know. You know Jacob, Phil Hartman. Terrific, terrific performer. He is, or was, I should say, was from Brantford, Ontario, my hometown. I don't, I don't know if he was born there, but I believe he attended high school while he was in uh, Brantford. And so we can add the name of Phil Hartman to the, uh, the Brantford Walk of Fame. Along with, of course, the great one, Wayne Gretzky, which reminds me, speaking of Wayne Gretzky, the hockey rink, the hockey rink is going up Saturday morning here in Thornhill in my backyard. And uh, Brandon and Jacob, hopefully you'll be coming over for uh, some three on three, a little shinny. And Jody, Jody, I hear you play in the in the, uh, the local beer league in Brampton last night. Uh, last night, Jody scored the uh, what's known as the Gordie Howe hat trick. A goal, an assist, and a fight. You want to be careful chasing the puck into the corners if you're playing against Jody. She's all elbows. Uh, but seriously, you're all invited to come skate or play hockey once it freezes over. Hell, that is. Just kidding, just kidding. Once we get the boards up, we bring in the water truck. That's right. I'm bringing in a water truck. You think I'm actually going to stand out there in the cold with a garden hose? No, you bring in a water truck and you can fill the thing in like 20 minutes and then you wait for the temperature to drop. And uh, voila, you've got a nice rink. Although Saturday, it's supposed to be 13 degrees, at least here in in Markham. 13 degrees. Uh, but with a little luck, we'll have uh, ice sometime before Christmas. All right. I just thought I'd give you the update. And I promised uh, Jody and Jacob I, and Brandon I would send before and after pictures. This thing, this rink and boards, hockey boards, snaps together like Lego. Uh, the uh, the jury in the Jesse Smollett trial, 
Now in the second day of deliberations, Jussie Smollett, of course, formerly of the TV series Empire, uh, was indicted for disorderly conduct for paying two brothers to stage a fake hate crime assault on him and then falling, uh, filing a false police report. Remember, he falsely claimed, this was back in January of 2019, he falsely claimed he was uh, in Chicago and was attacked by uh, two white men. He described them, two white men wearing MAGA hats and yelling out racial and homophobic slurs. He then alleged they poured bleach on him and wrapped a rope around his neck. And then in February 2019, Chicago police raided the home of two brothers who worked with Smollett as extras on uh, the TV show, on the TV set. And the police recovered records indicating the brothers had been paid $3,500 by Smollett. And they had they admitted they had purchased the rope found around Jussie's neck at a, at a hardware store. And they were also seen in the security camera footage of a clothing store where they had bought gloves, ski masks, and a red hat that police say was used in the attack. So here's Jussie Smollett breaking his silence on uh, ABC with host Robin Roberts back in February of 2019. Why do you think you were targeted? I can just assume, I mean, I come really, really hard against 45. I come really, really hard against his administration. And I don't hold my tongue. I want to ask you about Jesse Smollett. I think that's horrible. Uh, it doesn't get worse, as far as I'm concerned. Were you aware that he made that statement? I saw it. I don't know what to say to that. You know, um, you know, I appreciate him not brushing over it. And there is no doubt in your mind what motivated this attack. I could only go off of their words. I mean, who says empire, this MAGA country ties a noose around your neck and pours bleach on you? And this is just a friendly fight. I will never be the man that this did not happen to. I am forever changed. And I don't subscribe to the idea that everything happens for a reason, but I do subscribe to the idea that we have the right and the responsibility to make something meaningful out of the things that happen to us, good and bad. All right. Boy, oh boy, that did not age well, did it? I wonder how long did Jesse practice that in front of a mirror? Uh, what did he say? You know, who says that sort of thing to somebody? Well, nobody, apparently. Well, I mean, it does happen. Of course it happens. That's the problem. When when you perp, uh, perpetrate a hoax like this, it detracts from actual, real incidents of racism. That's the real tragedy here. And then what else did he say? I will never be the man this happened to ever again. You mean you will never be the man this didn't happen to ever again whatever that means. All right, well, we'll see what happens. Day two of the uh, jury deliberation. A conservative Pierre Polyev, representing the riot-in of Nepi and Carlton, he's the shadow minister for finance. I like Pierre for the most part. Um, 
he does his best work actually during question period in the House of Commons when he calmly asks embarrassing questions, of course, that never get answered. Then he simply rephrases and asks again and again and again. And each time his questions are met with a string of incoherent nonsense, usually from the Minister of Finance, Christia Freeland. But he also does great work in committee. Here he is asking about the proposed $7 billion the Libs want to use to top up healthcare for transfers and for infrastructure, an amount that will be added to the federal deficit, which is already sitting around, what, $340 billion? What's another $7 billion, right? What's another $7 billion? The question is a simple one, he asks. Where is the $7 billion coming from? This is quite comedic. Have a listen. How is the government paying the $7 billion bill? associated with this proposal. That question is directed to who, Mr. Poliev? Anyone who wants to answer it. If they have one, anyone over there that is concerned about where the money comes from, that person could speak up. I don't know who uh, on their side uh, is responsible for this, but clearly they're getting the money from somewhere, so they must know where. Anyone here from Finance Canada? I see Mr. Baylor. Chair, Chair, I, 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 a high-level uh, uh, response, but uh, I'm afraid I won't be able to uh, to answer uh, directly uh, the honourable member's uh, uh, question uh, be, be, because we're we're here to to discuss. And, and what I can say uh, with regards to the cost of the measures uh, in terms of, of part one, um, the, the three first programs that, that I uh, I mentioned, the, the hospitality, the tourism and hospitality recovery program, part businesses recovery program, uh, and the local lockdown program have a cost of $3.2 billion. And, and where's, and, sorry, sorry, Mr. Mr. Baylor, where's the money coming from? Mr. Chair, that, that is uh, within the, the government's uh, broader macroeconomic uh, framework, and, and I'm not, I, I'm not, uh, uh, respond, I, I, can't, I can't speak to, to that. Uh, so, so you don't have anyone here? It's just that we're, we're being asked to vote in favor of another $7 billion of spending. And the obvious question is, where's it coming from? Somebody's paying for it. Who is it? Tooth Fairy? No answer. All right. Who's paying for it? The Tooth Fairy? Uh, how about you, Minister? Can you explain? Well, I, uh, I don't. It's here somewhere. I, uh, I, uh, it's all part of the, uh, the, uh, the great economic uh, macro framework, which is to say that I, uh, I, uh, it's, I don't know. Oh, my Lord. What did they give away these positions in a raffle? Where do they find these people? All right, that clip went on a long time, uh, but I could only play about two minutes. All right, uh, coming up on today's program, Thursdays we get gender critical. Uh, In hour two, Linda Blade, co-author of Unsporting, will be here to discuss the case of a trans athlete, a biological male competing against female swimmers in the US and destroying all existing NCAA swimming records. New Blue MPP Belinda Carajalios, Uh, She tested positive back in November for COVID. Thank God the symptoms were mild. She recovered, completed her quarantine, and then was given the all clear to return to work. But then the speaker at Queens Park decided to banish her for 90 days. So she went, she got tested, it was negative. She returned to the legislature the day before yesterday only to be ejected once again. Why? Well, wait until you hear her. She'll uh, join us in uh, hour two.
Dr. Paul Alexander is here today. Uh, He was supposed to join us yesterday. We couldn't connect. He wrote an interesting piece for the Brownstone Institute about the 141 studies that affirm naturally acquired immunity to COVID-19. This is good news. It's not controversial. We should be uh, we should be celebrating this coming up this hour. The two Michaels are home from China. Thank God. But we'll learn about another Canadian citizen who has been languishing in a Chinese prison for 15 years. He happens to be a Uyghur. Uh, Mia Ashton, another member of COSBAR. She'll be here to discuss the provincial equivalent to the federal bill C4, which recently passed in the Senate, uh, which will ban conversion therapy. But first, a Toronto school trustee who uncovered anti-Semitic manuals produced by the Toronto District School Board's equity employee. Uh, well, she's been admonished when the trustee brought attention to the material that the, uh, the school board threatened to have her censored. Sue N. Levy. Investigative journalist and contributor to True North will be here next to discuss. Keep your stick on the ice. We'll be back in three minutes. We're back as the Richard Serrett Show continues on News Talk Saga 960 AM. So a Toronto District School Board trustee, Alexandra Lolka, uncovered some anti-Israel, anti-Semitic uh, manuals uh, produced by the TDSB's uh, equity employee, I guess we should say activist employee. Uh, And when she brought attention to this anti-Israel, anti-Semitic material, uh, she was threatened to be reprimanded by the uh, the school board after they produced a 50-page report. Imagine, she uncovers this ugly material contained in these manuals and the TDSB threatens to reprimand her. Here to uh, discuss further, our good friend Sue Ann Levy, investigative journalist, contributor to True North, and author of the fabulous underdog, Confessions of a Right-Wing Gay Jewish Muckraker. Sue Ann, welcome back. Hi, Richard. How are you today? I'm very well. I'm very well. So just to explain a little bit or go into more detail, what these manuals, these uh, anti-Semitic, anti-Israel manuals uh, contained? Oh, they were vitriolic. Uh, I actually broke the story back in May, and uh, there were two manuals, six put out on the 16th of May and the 19th of May, and the uh, queer Latina transformer who put them out, and that's how he describes himself, it's not me, um, he said uh, that he had carefully curated the materials. Well, he carefully curated materials that included portraying... um, the IDF soldiers, Israeli Defense Force soldiers, as murderers and thieves, Israelis as thieves. Um, he had a section on how to teach uh, kids in, you know, in primary school all about the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement, that highly anti-Semitic movement against Israel. And also, he uh, included a section um, advising people to read up on a known terrorist um, who talked about suicide bombings being uh, the way to seek justice. I mean, suicide bombings of Israelis, obviously. Right. And and who were these manuals uh, in, intended for? What, what purpose did these manuals serve? Well, he decided that during this conflict, this very controversial conflict, which he seemed to know very little about, that he was going to put out these resources to his opt-in mail list. So it was about, I guess, 1,500 teachers who were on his mailing list. Now, let's keep this in mind. This gentleman is uh, an equity employer who's supposed to deal with sexual violence and um, homophobia in the school board. 
but he's decided that he should get into uh, geopolitical um, uh, incidents, issues, whatever. And really, what the school board said is that they didn't even know that th these had gone out. They hadn't approved them. And uh, it was like an oops moment when they went out and they were revealed by my former uh, employer, the Toronto Sun, me as the journalist, of course. Right. right. And and um, so this school uh, trustee, Alexandra Loka, she picked up on your story and then retweeted it. Well, I think the sequence of events was such that I actually did the story after she had issued a statement. So um, I'm not sure of the actual timing, but I think she put her statement out before I my story actually came out. Now, I did a series of stories. I did three stories. You know, he was reviewed. He was put on leave. But she had put out this statement, I guess she had found out through um, some Jewish teachers who got the manuals. Um, and she put out a statement saying they were, you know, parts of them were anti-Semitic, highly anti-Semitic. And this is not the kind of thing that um, the board should, con you know, such should sanction um, the statement that she put out was innocuous it was just basically what one would do if one discovered hate in one's own community whether it's in the Jewish community the Muslim community the black community the, the you know the gay and lesbian community so right. she she represents a very highly dense Jewish ward so you know it was something I would have done anybody would have done and and so well, we're going to take a quick time out here. When we come back, Sue Ann, we'll discuss, you know, what possessed the, the Toronto District School Board then to issue this 50-page report calling for her to be reprimanded. Uh, I mean, this makes no sense. Uh, what does these days? Sue Ann Levy, investigative journalist, contributor to True North. She stays with us back with more of our conversation in three minutes. Don't go away. Let's get back at it on Newstalk Saga 960 AM. It's the Richard Serra Show. Joanne Levy stays with us, investigative journalist from True North and or a contributor to True North. And we're discussing uh, the Toronto District School Board trustee, Alexandra Luca, uh, who uncovered some rather unsavory materials, manuals uh, produced by the TDSB's uh, equity employee and the anti-Semitic, uh, anti-Israel material. When she brought attention to this, she was threatened with a reprimand. In fact, I guess it was last Friday, the TDSB's uh, Integrity Commissioner released a 50-page report recommending that Lulka be uh, reprimanded. Why on earth? I mean, what what happened there? What was the thinking there? Well, I think she was grasping for straws. And, you know, I have to say that Suzanne Craig, I've known her a long time. She used to be the Integrity Commissioner at the City of Toronto. And I always found her very fair-minded. But this, this report was convoluted it made no sense it was bizarre it was you know contradictory and essentially what she said in her report was that um, the manuals were indeed anti-semitic that they found and that the human rights offices at the board had said that there were anti-semitic components of uh, materials in the manual um, some of the things i've just mentioned to you about the suicide bombings and things like that total anti-semitic tropes however however and this is a big but she should still be reprimanded or censured uh, because she failed to in her statement say 
talk about the positive educational aspects of the manuals. So here we have a, a trustee saying they're anti-Semitic, but she should find some positive aspects to the manuals, which was just crazy. In my view, I think she was looking for things, looking for some way to pin a censure on her. That's like saying a whole other story. <laughs> right. I mean, that's like saying mind camp. Yeah, it's a horrible message, but all the spelling is good. You know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. My word. And um, so you also uncovered some interesting things about the investigator behind the report, Morgan Sim um, of, yeah, Morgan of Parker Sim. Sim. Yeah. Yeah. She's a lawyer in Toronto. And um, when I saw what she had written in the report or what had been reflected in the report about the uh, statement by Alexander Luca actually uh, harming Palestinians and Muslims, even though she didn't even mention Palestinians or Muslims in her statement, I thought, this is really weird. So I started looking at Morgan Sims' uh, Twitter feed. And she, even though she didn't tweet much uh, anti-Israel stuff, throughout the conflict and before that and after she approved or liked many many anti-israel tweets including the rally in downtown toronto i don't know if you remember that richard back on may 15th when some pro-palestinian supporters were filmed chasing jews and beating yes. a few of them up Yes. And just, just as a bit of a background, back in uh, May, sort of the height of this conflict um, between IDF and um, Palestinian forces in Gaza. Uh, right. So that's, I mean, there were tensions were pretty high. And that obviously, you know, that spilled over here in, in Canada between Palestinian and, and Jewish uh, citizens as well. So uh, continue. You were talking about, uh, so Sims. Yeah so, she, yeah. so she tweeted all this pro like pro-palestinian stuff she also was made it pretty clear in her social media feed that she wants to defund the police uh she it was also against uh the police breaking up the encampments um at downtown park so she is pretty left of center and you know if you wanted to create a are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. Um, some sort of story or narrative about Alexandra Luca, she would have been the one to pick. Now I asked how she got selected. I didn't get an answer. How much she got paid, I didn't get an answer. So I'm sure it was a lot of money. Right. And being pro-Palestinian is fine and tweeting out pro-Palestinian is fine. Yeah. But if you're being asked to be to to investigate, I mean, you have to be you have to be uh, a neutral here and objective. 
objective. I mean, she was the exact wrong person to pick. And frankly, she's a lawyer in Toronto. She should have said, no, I have a conflict of interest. I am not, you know, uh, exactly an Israel supporter. I shouldn't be taking this job. But she took it anyway, which speaks to, you know, possibly an ethics issue. Right. So this was supposed to be uh, considered yesterday, I guess, at the TDSB's regular board meeting. What happened? Well, uh, after a lot of backing and forth, and I'm just going to start with it because I just wrote the follow up story for True North should should be posted any minute now online. Um, First of all, the board chair, Alexander Brown, came on. They had a virtual meeting wearing a kafia like shawl around his shoulders. So this is kafia has now been known as the Palestinian symbol, dress symbol of Palestinian protest. And he was wearing that for 90 minutes during the meeting and social media went crazy over that. I mean, how not to send a statement. These people are so tone deaf, it's unbelievable. He said to me it was just a shawl, but even if it was, it was a very poor choice. It looked exactly to me like a kafia. Having said that, I mean, he was one of seven people, uh, there are 10 to seven, uh, who voted to sanction uh, Ms. Luca, uh, but Shelley Laskin, one of the other trustees, moved a motion to reject the report. There was a lot of backing and forthing and uh, just how amateurish these people are. They eventually rejected the report 10-7. But I'll tell you something, that came as a result of a lot of advocacy from the Jewish community in Toronto. 6,000 signatures to a petition, a story by me, uh, all the major groups, the advocacy groups weighing in, writing letters. I Frankly, I thought it was great. I've never seen the Jewish community come together over an issue you know, like this um, in the last couple of months when they should have. But at least this, they did come together. Well, um, you know, we, we spoke recently about how woke the TDSB has become. Right. And um, I mean, things really seem to be ratcheting up there. It seems to be coming quite hostile. Um, I, it is. And, you know, the board, the education director there. So this all stems from, I feel, I mean, there's always been an anti-Semitism problem, but I think it's ratcheted up because they're now pushing this critical race theory. Um, critical race theory uh, is uh, against anti-white supremacy, like uh, it's against white supremacists, it, you know, and they consider Jews white supremacists. And it is very, I think, anti-Semitic. I've seen overtones of it in the, or undertones of it in the States. And um, so I, I think that, you know, that is part of the problem right now is that this critical race theory is being pushed in the not just in the TDSB but other school boards around Ontario. I frankly feel that the education director needs to uh, not sorry the education minister needs to get control of this. It's getting out of control. You know in Virginia they just elected a governor who was anti-critical race theory. It's a very dangerous theory and look at this is the upshot of it uh, or part of the upshot. Indeed. Well, Sue Ann, great work. Uh, keep on it. We'll uh, talk again about Thank this. You. Unfortunately, we'll have to talk about it, no doubt. Unfortunately. Uh, Sue, Ann, <laughs> Sue Ann Levy, investigative journalist, contributor to True North, author of Underdog, Confessions of a Right-Wing Gay Jewish Muck Raker. All right. We'll uh, get... Um, uh, we'll talk about the uh, the Gender-Affirming Care Healthcare Adv- Adversary Advisory Committee. Sorry, that's a mouthful. The Gender-Affirming Care Healthcare Advisory Committee Ontario's Bill 17.
with um, Mia Ashton from Cosbar when we come back. Stay with us. You're listening to The Richard Serrett Show on Newstalk Saga, 960 AM. Everyone knows that if you want to get stronger, you should exercise. And if you want to support your immune system response this season, take Super Strength Oregano products from North American Herb and Spice. There is no substitute for Super Strength Oregano, the original truly wild organic oregano oil that's produced by old-fashioned steam distillation. Whether you prefer it as an oil or a vegan gel cap, it has the ingredients your body needs to help support a healthy immune response. Super Strength Oregano products from North American Herb and Spice are available at health food stores across the GTA or online at oregano.com. Visit the website, sign up for the North American Herb and Spice newsletter and receive 5% off your online orders. The website again, oregano.com. I'll spell it for you. O-R-E-G-A-N-O-L. Everybody, O-R-E-G-A-N-O-L. O-R-E-G-A-N-O-L. Super strength oregano products from North American Herb and Spice at oregano.com. So yesterday, the Senate, I guess it was the day before yesterday, the Senate passed a bill C-4. This is a piece of legislation that will criminalize conversion therapy. Well, the province has its own version that it is proposing. It's called Bill C-4. And uh, here to discuss is Mia Ashton. She's a writer and a member of COSBAR. That's Canadian Women's Sex-Based Rights. Mia, welcome. How are you? Uh, I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm well. So, uh, the proposed provincial uh, piece of legislation, Bill 17, how similar is it to Bill C4? Uh, well, it's not. It's not a conversion therapy bill. It's. Um, it's actually. The title of it is the Gender Affirming Healthcare Advisory Committee Act. It's, um, it's quite the mouthful. Um, so it's not. It's not going to, I, I do believe actually Ontario already has a, a conversion therapy bill in place. This one is, um, it proposes that the Ministry of Health form an advisory committee to review transgender healthcare in Ontario and make recommendations specifically for improving gender affirming care in the province. Okay, so uh, gender affirming. So in other words, uh, let's say a young boy or young girl suddenly feel, maybe they have rapid onset of gender dysphoria, they feel they're in the wrong body, that, uh, you know, I'm not a little boy, I feel like a little girl. Uh, that needs to be affirmed immediately. And so they, this piece of legislation would look into how to provide that, um, that individual who has gender dysphoria with what the proper care and counseling well it, it would be how to provide this individual with affirmation right so right the the gender affirming care approach starts from the position that if a person says they are trans transgender then they are transgender and that nobody can question that identity nobody can challenge it the clinicians can only affirm it so they they're seeking to um, make gender affirming care province wide. Um, 
there is already that's quite typical for Canada for Ontario um, they've they it used to be watchful waiting psychotherapy more of an investigative um, approach that has sort of been phased out in favor of gender affirming care anyway but the problem with this bill is the focus on only gender affirming care as if other forms of treatment do not exist right so for example underlying mental health issues which may have contributed to this gender dysphoria uh, would not be would not be considered so i'm understanding that in in I don't know what the percentage is, but in some of these cases of gender dysphoria, the, one of the underlying conditions is autism. Uh, yes, uh, children, well, adolescents on the autism spectrum are disproportionately showing up at gender clinics. Uh, as well, um, uh, uh, an overwhelming number of them are or will grow up to be gay or lesbian. Right. Um, so the thing about gender affirming care, the proponents of gender affirming care, though, they will they will look at all the coexisting mental health issues and see them as the result of this innate gender identity that doesn't match the sexed body. They'll see it as the result of the, the, the child being trans. So they see transition as the answer, not just to the gender dysphoria, but to all of the other coexisting mental health issues. They think they'll all resolve as soon as transition occurs. Right, so that somehow these underlying mental health issues will be resolved with hormone blockers and sex reassignment surgery, like cutting off uh, a woman's breasts, for example. Well, well, this is it. They don't see them as being underlying. They see them as being the result of. Right. Um, and they also, anyone who, who has a, uh, anyone who is a proponent of this model of care, they will ignore all detransition literature. They, they, they don't, they're not interested in any of the research into the detransitioners who themselves say that transition did not help any of their mental health issues. Um, Mia, we're almost out of time. We'll have to have you back on. To we paid some attention to the federal, uh, you know, Bill uh, C four, but we haven't talked about Bill C seventeen or Bill seventeen, and we should pay more attention to it. But very quickly before we go, um, is the provincial government going to allow for any public uh, consultation, uh, or are they just going to ram it through the way the feds did with Bill C seven, uh, Bill C four? Oh, that that remains to be seen. We we have submitted um, a brief and a number of other um, organizations who are more, they, they, they want the watchful waiting approach, the more cautious approach. We've submitted briefs and um, we're waiting to see what happens next. I hope they don't push it through in the same way. All right. We'll reconnect down the road shortly, Mia, and uh, talk about this some more. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Mia Ashton, writer and member of COSBAR. All right, when we come back, you've heard about the two Michaels who languished in a Chinese prison. Uh, but you haven't heard, perhaps, of this Canadian citizen who's been behind bars in China for 15 years. We'll meet or we'll learn about him next. Stay with us. Back to the conversation on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM. Well, thank goodness... After over a thousand days in a, uh, a horrible, dank Chinese prison, the two Michaels, Michael Spavor and Michael Kovig, are home with their families. 
horribly traumatized, I'm sure. They have a long road of, uh, of healing ahead of them. But you may not be aware that there is another Canadian citizen who remains behind bars in China and has been so for the last 15 years. 15 years. His name is Hussein Salil. And uh, he is a, uh, a member of the, uh, well, the persecuted Uyghur majority, Uyghur Muslim majority in China. Here to tell us more is Mehmet Toti, Executive Director of the Uyghur Rights Advocacy Project. Mehmet, welcome back to the program. How are you, my friend? Thank you. So, uh, tell us about Salil, uh, Hussein Salil. Uh, he's a member of our Uyghur Canadian community. And he came to Canada in 2001 with the referral of UNHCR as he was uh, granted uh, UN-mandated refugee status by the UNHCR office in Ankara, Turkey. And uh, he became a Canadian citizen on November 15th, 2005. And he was an active member of our community and frequently joined us in our rally, protest rally in front of the Chinese Consulate General in, uh, in, Tur- in, in, in Toronto. And he's also uh, uh, the imam, the preaching peace and the solidarity among our communities and providing uh, consoling to the vulnerable member of our, uh, our community members. And basically, uh, he went to Uzbekistan to visit uh, his wife's family members. And the Chinese government abducted him in Tashkent, Uzbekistan in March 2006. And uh, uh, later on, uh, transported him to China and sentenced him for life without any trial. And so uh, he's in uh, Chinese jail, and we don't know, uh, we, ha- we don't have any information since 2017. And even we don't know he's alive or dead. And that is really uh, a uh, situation that all Uyghurs are concerned very much. So here we have a Canadian citizen yeah. languishing in, well, we, we don't know uh, if he's alive or dead, but... It, if he's still alive, he's been in prison without trial in China for 15 years. It must be infuriating, Mehmet, that that this is, you know, complete. I mean, there was a, a piece in the National Post uh, today, but very, very little media attention in this story. I mean, you know, the two Michaels received a lot of media attention, deservedly so. But here we have somebody else for 15 years behind bars and virtually media silence. Could you comment on that, please? Uh, I do not know the motive behind uh, behind why uh, the media uh, is not uh, paying enough attention, and probably it comes from the top level. And the media sometimes uh, reflects uh, what uh, what what the position of the the, the government on this uh, issue. And we don't even see uh, from our politicians talking about the same general, either in parliament or other bilateral uh, conversation with the Chinese government. And we don't uh, hear from them. And because uh, our government 
most likely uh, uh, they put this uh, person's profile in somewhere in their archive without uh, bringing it to the, the public spotlight and probably media also forgotten. But uh, the thing is, uh, reality is, it is harsh reality and his wife is suffering here in Burlington, Ontario. And he has four children and uh, never seen their uh, father since 15 years. And the youngest one, even uh, he doesn't know his father because uh, he was abducted when the Angel's wife was uh, four months pregnant for the youngest boy. And this is the tragic situation. And uh, thank you for you to bring up this uh, tragedy to the public eyes. And most importantly, as we've seen uh, from the True Michael's example, when there is a determination from the government on the top level, uh, there is a way to do uh, to do things, and there is a possibility of securing our fellow citizens from uh, foreign uh, countries, even they're in prison. And uh, uh, we have to uh, put pressure on the government. Uh, to do something about because uh, Camila, uh, the wife of Hussein Jalil, she did her best and now uh, raising her four boys without any uh, parental support. And uh, she tried to bring this issue to the attention of public and uh, to the attention of the government officials. But we don't hear anything from the, the global affairs and others. The most of the time they say we, we, we keep this uh, file in our uh, dialogue with Chinese government. And even uh, the Canadian government, I don't know if he asked the Chinese government to update about his well-being, whether he's in concentration camp or he's in uh, the prison or he's in uh, the slave labor factory somewhere in mainland China, whether he, he's alive or dead. And that, that if government doesn't get that update, there is no way for us to get that information from the Chinese government. Uh, it seems as if officialdom could care less, um, tragically. So uh, he has family in Burlington. Uh, do we know whether the MP, I'm not sure who the MP in Burlington is. Uh, whether, uh, I have to check. I have okay. To check. Well, regardless of who it is, this person should obviously be, you know, um, talking about this yeah. in the uh, in the House of Commons. Uh, this is, you know, these are constituents. Yeah. And uh, this is a Canadian citizen. A Canadian yeah. citizen, 15 yeah. years, has just been disappeared, and nobody in Ottawa seems yeah. to care. Uh, Momet, thank you so much for bringing this to our attention, and we're going to keep on this story. And uh, perhaps we can um, uh, we, we'll get this uh, this uh, MP MP member of Parliament for Burlington on the program, and uh, and find out why this isn't being raised in the House of Commons. Thank you so much for your time, sir. Thank you, thank you for uh, for your bringing up uh, to this file to the Canadian public. It is important. Absolutely, it is. Thank you. Mehmet Todi, Executive Director of the Uyghur Rights Advocacy Project. All right, plenty of show still to come. Hour two, we'll uh, finally connect with Dr. Paul Alexander and talk about these 141 research studies affirming naturally acquired immunity to COVID-19. It's great news, folks. That's uh, all coming up in hour two. Stay with us.
The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management. The Richard Serrett Show continues on Newstalk Saga 960 AM. All right, welcome to Hour 2. And we're going to do take two on uh, gender critical uh, discussions. When Linda Blade joins us towards the uh, the tail end of the program, Linda is Cosbar's representative on sports and also the co-author of Unsporting, How Trans Activism and Science Denial Are Destroying Sport, Destroying Women's Sport in particular. Uh, we'll talk about uh, the uh, trans uh, athlete who now goes by the name of uh, Leah Thomas. And uh, Leah is basically destroying all of the uh, records in the NCAA women's uh, swimming down in the U.S. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. Leah attends the University of Pennsylvania, which is an Ivy League school, and uh, previously, for the last three years, was competing as a uh, as a male swimmer. And to get this at a recent three-day event, a three-day meet in Akron, Ohio, it was the uh, the 1650 freestyle, 1650 meter freestyle. The uh, the trans athlete um, didn't just you know win the meet, destroy all the records, set new records. Thomas's female teammate also from the University of Pennsylvania, finished second, but get this, 38 seconds behind. That shows you the disparity. So uh, we'll speak with Linda Blade about that. And uh, Belinda Carajalios returns to the program, New Blue MPP for Cambridge. And uh, she tested positive for COVID back in November. Thank God the, the symptoms were mild. She recovered, she observed the, uh, the quarantine, and then under the provincial protocols was cleared to return to work, except the um, the speaker uh, basically decided to make his own rules, I guess, and she was uh, banished for 90 days. Well, she got tested again the day before yesterday. It was negative. She went back to the legislature, uh, took her seat, uh, stood up to ask a question, and then the speaker ordered her removed yet again. And we'll find out what happened this time when Belinda Carajalios uh, joins us. All right. Uh, we're finally going to get to uh, to speak with Dr. Paul Alexander. A couple of things happening. Well, uh, he's written a couple of uh, great pieces. We don't have Dr. Alexander yet again. All right. I'm getting the international symbol for stretch. Stretch. All right. It's like making pizza dough <laughs> on the radio. So here we go. Uh, I'm sure Brandon will uh, will try and raise Dr. Alexander. Very busy person, obviously. Um, so let me just 
yesterday we were talking about 141, 141 studies now affirm naturally acquired immunity to COVID-19. Now, this is something, again, we've known uh, for about 2,500 years in terms of immunity acquired from a previous infection, going all the way back to the days of ancient Greece. There was uh, the plague of Athens, and uh, academics or scientists are unsure whether it was smallpox or typhus. That uh, I think it, it uh, killed something like 25% of Athens' uh, population, uh, but it swept through the entire population, and those that remained developed, you guessed it, natural immunity. So, you know, this is not new. This is not new. We've known about it for a long time, but for whatever reason, for whatever reason, maybe because SARS-CoV-2 is truly a novel coronavirus, maybe the, the, the rules that seem to apply for everything else, including chickenpox and mumps and, and, and smallpox and, and uh, all that. Now we're being told, no, natural immunity doesn't apply. Well, there are 141 studies to date now uh, that are affirming naturally acquired immunity to COVID-19. And uh, in this article, Dr. Alexander has them all documented, linked, and quoted. So you can go to the uh, Brownstone Institute's website, which is brownstone.org, brownstone.org, and read the article for yourself, look at the studies, and then make your own decision. Uh, but, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a mountain of evidence out there that uh, naturally acquired immunity to COVID-19 um, has been affirmed. Not only that, but it is very robust. So we'll talk to him about that. And um, But just today, he's uh, written another column, and this has to do with children and whether to vaccinate children against COVID-19. What does the data show in terms of the risk to children? This is an important consideration for those of you maybe on the fence or wondering to vaccinate your five, six, seven, eight-year-old, nine-year-old, 10-year-old, you name it. Um, some interesting studies coming out of Sweden and Germany. And uh, just recently, uh, there was a, um, a physician with, I believe it was Johns Hopkins University, who said that there are, there are zero deaths of COVID in the United States, zero deaths of pediat or zero pediatric deaths in the United States uh, in otherwise healthy children. In other words, we're not talking about children that have serious underlying conditions like childhood leukemia um, or, you know, children that are severely compromised. If you take those children out of the data, zero deaths of children from COVID-19. All right. Do we have Dr. Alexander? No, not yet. All right. Well, why don't I just read this study? or this article rather. Again, this is Dr. Paul Alexander. And uh, let me just introduce, or let me just give you his, uh, his credentials in case you're wondering. Dr. Alexander is, uh, holds a PhD. He has experience in epidemiology and in the teaching of clinical epidemiology, evidence-based medicine and research methodology. He's a former assistant professor at McMaster University in evidence-based medicine and research methods. He's a former COVID pandemic evidence synthesis consultant advisor 
to the World Health Organization in Washington, D.C., and a former senior advisor to COVID pandemic policy in health and human services. That's the U.S. Department of uh, Health and Human Services, the HHS in Washington. So let me just uh, crib here from his article headlined Sweden and Germany, no deaths in children due to COVID. The decision by parents to vaccinate their child against COVID is really a question of risk management. Parents must seriously consider that COVID-19, oh, I think we have Dr. Alexander. Wonderful. All right, the aforementioned Dr. Paul Alexander joins us now. Hello, sir, how are you? Not bad, how are you? I'm very well. I can understand you're incredibly busy, so I appreciate your time. Thank you for this. So um, I just, um, I gave my listeners your your considerable uh, credentials. And uh, I mentioned this article. I wanted to start with this, if I could. This was the, um, the, the piece that you wrote, I believe yesterday, titled Sweden and Germany, No Deaths in Children Due to COVID. And uh, you talk about the, you know, the importance of parents uh, weighing the, the, you know, the risk and benefit of vaccinating their children. So what did we learn or, uh, from these studies in Sweden and Germany or the data coming out of Sweden and Germany regarding pediatric uh, deaths, let's say, from COVID? Well, thanks a lot for having me. And um, and uh, I, I don't really consider my credentials any more special than other folk. And, um, you know, I've just been fortunate in the sense that, you know, I... I went to academia, but I, I suspect several of you there might be even more expertise than me. Um, but what we learned is that there were no deaths. And I think the key issue is that that paper follows one that was published about a week ago on lockdowns and school closures, about 400 studies that I put together in one paper published in Brownstone. And um, what essentially it's saying is that uh, Sweden, as an example, Sweden looked at um, all of the children zero to 16 years old across the pandemic. But what was very important is that there were no lockdowns, no masks, no social distancing, that whole setup that we in the West did. And that, and that the force of mobility and mortality in the children was, was almost non-existent. And that's what we've been arguing. We've been arguing that the lockdowns and the um, school closures were were misguided across the world. And um, when we look at the evidence, we can't find any um, bona fide evidence that that the lockdowns, the school closures, the shelter in place, mass mandates, etc., worked. So they so impose crushing harms on your society. So again, we're looking at Swedish data by uh, Ludvigsson, and we're looking at the cohort of one to 16 years of age, which is roughly, well, it's almost 2 million children in Sweden. As of December 31st, 2020, they, uh, and again, no, no, um, largely no lockdowns or masks. They found zero deaths. Now, were there, does that mean that they've excluded, uh, let's say pediatric deaths uh, from from COVID where there were serious underlying conditions or are we saying there were zero deaths period in from one to 16? Zero deaths period. Zero deaths period. And then also similar data coming out of a recent German study, I understand. Tell me about that. 
But similarly, I don't have it open in front of me, but um, if I could recall that data, let me see the study that is. You have it in front of you. I correct? do. I'm just I'm just trying to crib here quickly. Uh, a national a seroprevalence study, uh, the German statutory no- notification system, a nationwide registry on children and adolescents hospitalized with either SARS-CoV-2 or pediatric inflammatory multisystem syndrome reported there were zero deaths. This time, the cohort was five to 18 year olds across yeah. the period of study. So, again, zero deaths in Sweden. Uh and zero deaths in Sweden, uh, Germany and Sweden. So it's interesting because we have kind of a, a, a comparison here in contrast, because Germany obviously took a very different route. They've had a lot of lockdowns. They had mask mandates. Uh, and in Sweden, the, quite the opposite. So despite both uh, differing approaches, we had the same result in terms of pediatric deaths in both of these countries, Germany being the largest country in Europe, population wise, zero deaths. Well, look, I don't know how to come at what you're trying to say, but let me say it this way. When we look at the data across the world in children, young children, the data is clear across the world that children do not readily get infected. Children do not spread it to children readily. Statistical zero risk. Children don't spread it to adults. Children don't take it home. Children don't get readily ill, or children don't die. And when we looked at all of the deaths in the United States, as an example, 400 odd deaths, we found that there's no child that died, that was given a diagnosis of COVID, who was not unwell. So when a child dies, COVID is not an illness of, of infants and children and young people. It has remained an illness of persons median age of 82, with two or three underlying medical conditions, period, and obese people. That's it. Right, right. Uh, Dr. Alexander, we'll take a quick time out, come back, and I would like to talk about the uh, the study that was uh, posted, your, uh, rather your um, piece that was posted earlier at uh, brownstone.org. This had to do with... This is the 141 studies affirming natural immunity. We'll uh, we'll pick up on that when we come back. We'll take a time out. We'll come back and discuss. Dr. Paul Alexander stays with us. Back with more in a moment. Don't go away. Welcome back to the Richard Serrett Show on News Talk Saga 960 AM. Welcome back. Dr. Paul Alexander stays with us. He has experience in epidemiology and in the teaching of clinical epidemiology, evidence-based medicine, research methodology, and as a, a former assistant professor at McMaster University. And uh, recently at uh, brownstone.org, you published, um, or I guess you kind of curated some of these 141 studies now, 141 that affirm natural immunity um, from a prior infection for COVID-19. So uh, do these studies, um, and they're all linked by the way, and quoted in the, uh, in the article, again, brownstone, brownstone.org. Do these studies offer any insight into how long lasting this uh, natural immunity from a prior infection is? Well, <clears throat> that's a very good question that you asked. And um, the reality is that because there was this, uh, this um, 
focus on vaccine immunity. And there was this belief that uh, from around mid of 2020 and the beginning of 2021, just before the vaccine rolled out, um, the CDC and different health agencies across the world and governments were saying, look, you know, your um, the antibodies in your blood was waning. So therefore, those of you who recovered from COVID, uh, you don't really have good immunity because the antibodies that you have are declining. So that means your natural immunity is declining. But these people knew better than that. They knew that they were deceiving the public. That was a vaccine drive. They knew that there was no such thing as your natural immunity going or declining. They, we knew, they knew this, they knew better than that, that your antibodies do wane. But they knew that it wanes and it plateaus and it stays at a very low level. And when you re-expose again, we have long-lived bone marrow plasma cells that will churn out new antibodies and you deal with the exposure again. So they knew that, that, that the long-lived immune response at the cellular level was basically decades long and lifelong. And we have evidence from SARS-1 to SARS-2. SARS-1, about 18 years ago, uh, that virus, the sister virus to this present one, about 80% similarity, uh, homologous similarity. And we find that SARS persons who had SARS-1 18 years ago still have cellular immune response to SARS-1 and actually cross-reactive, cross-protective immunity to SARS-2. More importantly, there was a study done in 2008, around 2009, um, looking at um, persons who were still alive when they were infected and exposed uh, during the Spanish flu in 1917-1918. And uh, researchers had collected the blood of those persons in 2008-2009, around there and examined the blood and they found remarkably after 90, let's say 100 years, that the blood was still reactive, still had cellular T-cell immunity, a T-cell response to the Spanish flu. So it showed us basically, instead of theoretically thinking that natural immunity can be very long-lived and can potentially be lifelong, we actually had bona fide evidence. But the fact of the matter is this, these researchers who quickly mounted some, some studies funded by the CDC and the NIH were very duplicitous to the public. And why I say that is this. They would publish a study and say, natural immunity lasts for six months, natural immunity lasts for five months, natural immunity lasts for seven months. But the, but the disingenuousness of what they were doing was this. They were actually running the study for six months and the study ended there and they published it as though that was the end of your natural immunity. Had they run the study for 55 or 80 years, you would still have natural immunity. So you see, the public is not reading deeper into the study. They're not trying to understand what else is written in there. And they're just taking what the title says, or they read two lines. In other words, vaccine immunity can never supplant or be superior to natural immunity. And any basic immunologist, I'm not an immunologist. I've learned a lot over these last two years. I'm an epidemiologist, but basic biology, a grade 11 biology student knows 
that natural immunity is far superior than vaccine immunity. Vaccine immunity tries to approximate natural immunity. Natural immunity looks at the complete pathogen, the complete viral ball, including, in this case, the spike protein, the nucleocapsid, the, the, the membrane protein, everything. The vaccine confers immunity based on one protein, the spike that sits on the viral ball. So, so it's as if, it's as if, um, so let's say someone uh, went away, and they, the natural immunity takes a pic, takes a look at at someone. Let's say you, and it looks at you entirely from head to toe, looks at everything about you, your your face, your your ears, eyes, nose, the shirt you have on, complete. That's natural immunity. Vaccine immunity will just look at your nose. Take a shot of that. Now, if you went away for a week and came back, and you went and you did a nose job, and you came back, natural immunity, despite you change your nose, will still recognize you because everything else on you stayed same. And it has a picture of everything else. So you could put it together and say, well, this is still you. Vaccine immunity that only took a picture of your nose can't recognize you anymore. And that's excellent. That's an excellent an- analogy, uh, Dr. Alexander. Thank you so much. We're out of time. I would love to to connect with you again. You're just a, a font of ter- tremendous information. And we can find these articles at brownstone.org, part yes. of the Brownstone Institute. Uh, Dr. Yes. Paul Alexander, thank you, sir, I'd, so much for your time. I'd be welcome to come back. Thank you very much sir, for having me. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. When we come back, Belinda Carajalios from New Blue. Why was she kicked out of the legislature yet again? We'll find out. The Bull Session continues on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM. Bull Session indeed. What kind of bull are they serving up at Queens Park these days? Belinda Carajalios, MPP uh, for Cambridge, the New Blue MPP for Cambridge, uh, joins us uh, once again. Belinda, welcome back. Hey, Richard, how are you? I'm well. So when last we spoke, uh, Belinda, mm-hmm. um, you had recovered from um, a COVID. You had relatively mild symptoms back in November. You tested positive. Uh, thank God they were mild. You recovered. Um, you did your your quarantine. And then according to provincial uh, protocols, you were you were clear to go back to work. That's correct. So, but then you found out that um, according to the speaker's rules, you would not be allowed. Uh, in fact, you would be effectively banished from the legislature for 90 days uh, because why? Explain that part again. So this is the interesting part. So I had that email from Public Health um, and it's it's rules from Public Health and the Ministry of Health that says, uh, you know, quarantine is over. You're good to return to work. You do not need to provide a negative test to return to work. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. 
call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. This email to the speaker and to the uh, legislative individual, the the individual who's in charge of the COVID protocols. Um, And the speaker's response was, you know, if if public health is saying you can't test for 90 days, um, then you can't test for 90 days. And remember, the rules are you either provide a negative test or show proof of double vaccination. So he didn't say I can't come back for 90 days. He did not say that once over the phone or in writing. I still don't even have that in writing. Um, So I tested Monday night. I tested negative. I used a rapid antigen test. I went to the legislature. I was allowed access from the peace officers there. Um, I followed all the rules, Richard. I followed all the rules. I did not break quarantine. I did everything I was supposed to do. Uh, And then Speaker Ted Arnett called me out saying that I was in contravention of his rules. Um, And this was news to me because nowhere have we received anything in writing saying that, oh, by the way, uh, you actually can't come back for 90 days, even if you test negative after a positive. So in other words, they changed the rules again. It seemed like it. And on the spot, on the spot, we actually I actually asked if not not to to Ted, but um, if if someone was to prove they were fully vaccinated would the same rules apply. Nope. If you're fully vaccinated, you can come back on in. There's no special rules. Okay, so that uh, I'm just trying to understand here the chronology because the the, the first time you were told you can't come uh, because you, um, you was it that you couldn't test after you had um, after you had tested positive and you recovered, you you couldn't test again because because of the viral load even though you were symptom free you you might produce a false positive is that the idea that you couldn't test right so i couldn't get a test um, administered by a pharmacist so and, and here's where it gets it gets interesting so i was told that you needed to have a pharmacist administered rapid antigen test there is no pharmacist in the province that will administer this test for you if you've tested positive for COVID-19 in the last 90 days because there is a risk not of a false negative, which is what Ted Arnott put in his letter, but the risk of a false positive. And public health doesn't want to have um, the numbers inflated by having these false positives on there because the pharmacist would be required to report it to public health. Right, right. And then you're going to be in this like, you know, never ending um, quarantine phase if that's the case. Exactly. Um, I found out from MPP Nichols that um, the legislature was now handing out these rapid antigen tests to MPPs to use. And so, uh. yes, so I, I got a rapid antigen test and I tested myself, took a picture of the front and back as per their new rules, which they never provided to me beforehand. And that's how I was able to gain entry because I tested myself. Aha. Uh-huh. Yes. All right. So then you so now that you with a fresh new negative test, correct. You showed up at the legislature, took your seat. You were ready to you know to give them hell and hang fire again and ask another question. And then the speaker had you ejected. We'll uh, we'll come back and discuss further. 
Belinda Carajalios, New Blue, MPP for Cambridge. Back with more of The Richard Serrett Show in three minutes. Don't go away. Just having a little chin wag on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM. Back with Belinda Carajalios, New Blue, MPP for Cambridge, uh, ejected from the uh, legislature day before yesterday, despite after recovering uh, from cor- uh, COVID, quarantining, uh, and then uh, doing a, um, a, a rapid antigen test, testing negative yet again, and yet still she is uh, ejected. So what was the, uh, I mean, did, he, did the speaker, Mr. Arnott, offer any explanation that despite the fact that you had a negative test in hand? No, of course not. He He's interpreting these public health rules the way that he sees fit. So, you know, I've spoken to a public health nurse directly um, who doesn't understand why he's making these decisions. Um, just because public health says I shouldn't be required to test, he's interpreting it to say that I can't test and therefore I can't access the legislature because it requires a negative test to enter. I did provide a negative test. So when he kicked me out on Tuesday, it was ridiculous. Like it really, really and truly Richard, I don't even know how to describe it. It was absolutely ridiculous. Just right there. And then he's like, no, you can't come back for 90 days. And then the letter, I know there's a letter circulating around that he sent to me where he's saying there was a risk of false negatives and false positives. There's no risk of a false negative. It's the false positive that they're concerned about. And if I'm conducting my own tests and I test positive, I'm not going to go into the legislature. Right. I've not heard of this thing of a a false negative before. We do hear about false positives. Now, this is very telling, though, isn't it? Because he's if he's saying, in other words, that these PCR tests and these antigen tests Mm -hmm. are unreliable, which seems to be what he's saying. We can't trust the PCR test. We can't trust the rapid antigen test. It could produce a false negative. It could produce a false positive. Uh, And yet for the last two years, they have been basing much of their COVID policy on these on case numbers. And yet he's admitting we can't rely on the on the tests that inform the case numbers. Correct. He actually uses the word unreliable in that letter. He says, you know, that they're unreliable. And it's amazing because he sits with the PC party. Right. And it's the PC party that's been wreaking havoc on Ontarians for the last 20 months. And, you know, the science is constantly changing. Goalposts are moving. And, um, you know, it appears that this, there's special science just for me, Richard, when, when it's coming from uh, the Speaker of the House. Uh, this is amazing. Um, so has anyone taken this letter or have you taken this letter where he where the Speaker, a member of the PC caucus, says that PCR tests, rapid antigen tests are unreliable. Therefore, that, you know, that's the rationale for excluding you, kicking you out of the legislature, uh, uh, presented this letter to the Minister of Health, Christine Elliott, and said, what gives? Your own speaker says the tests are unreliable. Uh, is this true? Is this accurate? I've actually been copied on a couple of those letters at my constituency office just today, where people have done done just that. They've uh, emailed um, to the Minister of Health, Christine Elliott, and they've copied me. I think that the gentleman blind cop, carbon copied me in one instance, but asking exactly that. Like, you know, there is a disconnect there. There is clearly a disconnect. Uh, and it doesn't look good. Like, it, you know, people are, um, you know, two years ago, two years ago plus, most people didn't think twice about public health. 
uh, you know, the public health unit, public health agency. And now everyone is very, very suspicious of them because of what what's going on. The manipulation of data, the manipulation of, you know, words in this case with, with, with Ted Arnott. Like it's just people are very upset. And especially in my situation where I'm an elected representative being told that I cannot represent my constituents uh, when the House is in session until the 90 days is up. And winter break is now, uh, are we now into a Christmas break, winter it, break? Yes, it officially started today. Okay, so, um, and then we'll resume in February? February 22nd, uh, as long as we don't get called back early. Um, if By February 22nd, I would be done my, my 90-day uh, speaker-imposed imprisonment, I suppose. Okay, so you would go and you would, you would um, um, because you're not, you're refusing to release your vaccine status as, it, as is your right. Uh, so then you are in it. Instead, you are providing uh, a negative test. Well, Correct. given his most recent ruling that PCR tests and rapid antigen tests are unreliable, do you have any confidence then that you will be allowed into the legislature when the, when the winter break is over, given his his recent uh, ruling? At this point, anything could happen. That, that, that's the crazy thing. At this point, anything could happen. Um, I, I don't know uh, what he's going to do. I, I was shocked that he he did what he did on Tuesday by by having me escorted out of the legislative chambers, uh, even though I tested negative. It, it just uh, nothing surprises me anymore at this point, unfortunately. And, and we are one hundred percent certain that the the speaker of the provincial legislature. Um, those were his words that the PCR and the rapid antigen tests are unreliable. Correct. I can even send you a copy of the letter if you like. I'd love to see that. Yeah, I'll send it to you. Uh, yes, because the Minister of Health must respond to this. Yes. She must. For the last She's- two years, all of the all of the policy. Ex- well, I mean, obviously, some of it's been based on polling. We know that. Wink, wink. Uh, but that, but it has also been based on these case numbers. And if we are being told now by the speaker that the case numbers are unreliable because they're based on the PCR and the rapid antigen tests, which are unreliable, the whole house of cards collapses. And there's other people asking, like, well, does this mean everyone should be staying home for 90 days? If they're so unreliable after, a you know, once you've tested positive, should everyone stay home for 90 days after a COVID infection? Like, there's people questioning that as well. It, it's... It's junk science. It is junk science. All right. Um, well, Belinda, we'll, we'll follow this one with interest. Let's see if the Minister of Health uh, responds, Christine Elliott, uh, to uh, the words of her very own speaker of the provincial legislature saying the PCR tests, the rapid antigen tests, which inform the case numbers, are unreliable. Um, oh, some good news from uh, the New Blue. You're opening up um, uh, applications for... Uh, candidates for the upcoming provincial election, I understand. Yes, that's correct. That actually just opened up. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. 
Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. Up today, I believe we officially opened up the portal. So all those interested, newblueontario.com. Uh, you got to be a member first. Take a look at the Constitution. See if uh, we're everything we hope you are. I hope that we are. And uh, apply. All right. Thank you so much, Belinda. Thank you. As always, Richard, always a pleasure. Belinda Carajalios, New Blue MPP for Cambridge. All right. When we come back, another example of transgender athletes. This one, a biological male competing against women and smashing all records. Is this fair? Linda Blade, the co-author of Unsporting, is next. Stay with us. Let's rejoin the conversation on The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk Saga 960 AM. All right, we're going to get uh, gender critical one more time on a Thursday. So a Pennsylvania transgender swimmer, a biological male who now goes by the name of Leah Thomas, spent three years at the Ivy League school swimming as a male. Now... As a transgendered athlete, Leah has been busy smashing female pool records. And uh, by all accounts, friction is beginning to build within the team. According to a a Pennsylvania uh, University of Pennsylvania female swimmer, said she feared for her ability to find employment after graduating from college for sharing her honest opinion about her transgender teammate. Uh, Linda Blade is uh, with us once again, Cosbar's representative on sports, and she's the co-author of Unsporting, How Trans Activism and Science Denial Are Destroying Sport. Well, this is just a kind of a classic example, isn't it, Linda? I mean, talk about smashing records. They just, uh, uh, Leah Thomas is obliterating these uh, female swimming records. Well, thank you, Richard. It's just so fatiguing because by now we know the obvious. Men should not be in women's sports, people born male. Even if they identify as women, they shouldn't be there. And it's just ridiculous. Like you said, like huge margins. Well, this one race, you know, the 1650 race, freestyle, Leah went, like touches the wall and it takes over 38 seconds. That's two and a half more lengths of swimming the rest of the women have to do uh, for the second place Anna, Anna Sophia to finish. Uh, that is just astronomical. You could go to the con- concession stand and back by the time Anna, you know, gets to the wall in second place. It's a joke. Right. And and this uh, this transgender athlete, Leah, Leah Thomas, uh, it, it's not mm-hmm. as if um, Leah transitioned, you know, when she was, I don't know, maybe an adolescent. She she swam as a male swimmer against male competitors her previous three years at the University of Pennsylvania. Yeah. Yes, this is the problem. Uh, the problem is that Leah is about 6'4", huge long arms, not that it makes any difference. If a man's in swimming in a woman's race, he's in the wrong, uh, it's a different design, like I always say, it's a different design, it doesn't matter. But in this case, he's got a huge advantage. And, um, and you know, there's nothing, absolutely nothing fair about this. I mean, there's, there'd be no, no change in his bone length or shoulder breadth or even much strength as we've seen in research by diminishing if he diminished his testosterone to the degree that everybody says he did and there's no way to tell if the hormone therapy had been correct like how you're going to monitor somebody 24 7 for for a year to make sure they're complying all the time there's no way that's true 
You're talking about the testosterone suppression medication. Yeah, that, that's what I mean. Yeah, you're supposed to yeah. suppress the testosterone. And what ha- what happens is even if you think you're being honest, but you're going to go for the test, you know, one day you're going to work really hard at getting your testosterone levels down for the test. And then the rest of the month, if, I don't know how often you even got tested. But the rest of the month, you can just let your male hormones go back to the same level and then get them down again for the next test. So it's not even as if living as a woman for a year and declaring and everything and having that time out period changed anything whatsoever. There's no, there is absolutely no evidence that anything changed in this person's body. So uh, as I mentioned earlier, the teammates on this University of Pennsylvania Ivy League swim team, female swim team, uh, the friction is increasing because you know, outwardly, they're trying to show support. You know, they'll say, you know, they'll, mm-hmm. as Leah Thomas is th- destroying all records in the NCAA, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. they're clapping and, you know, half-heartedly saying, yay, way to go, Leah. Uh, but they're <laughs> saying this is this is all a lie. I mean, they're fed up. Her, uh, Leah's teammates lie. are fed up with this. Um, is, yeah. this is this friction uh, to be found in... in um, uh, among female athletes here in Canada uh, in collegiate sports and, and so forth as well. I think we're, never, we're never told. We're never told because nobody ever announces it. Nobody tells us how many. Like we are, it's a, to the point where it's it's considered hateful to make any sport, like anybody say like the details of their life once they declare as transgender. So it's also the rule of privacy that you can't ask any questions after that. So we have no idea. And even if, if women did speak out in like some of these rugby leagues and whatnot, we would never hear about it because, hey, the press never reports it. Uh, it's stifled by the organization. Women are threatened, as we've heard in the UK, that if they have any positions inside these sporting organizations, they'll get fired or lose their job or be, you know, go come under extreme scrutiny if they say anything against it. Women are being bullied, Richard, into accepting this. It's, it's just um, unbelievable. I can't believe I'm living in this year to see this. Right, right. And um, we should also point out that Leah Thomas, when Leah was swimming uh, against other men, mm-hmm. um, he was second team, all Ivy League. I mean, this is not just, this isn't yeah. an athlete who was competing against men, but was doing you know poorly or was kind of mediocre. He was right. second right. team all Ivy. He was yeah, all Ivy. An, an yeah, elite, an elite really male athlete. Yeah, an elite all ma- um, male athlete now competing against women, destroying their records. It must be so frustrating for uh, for women. Are we are we able to measure? Do we have any idea? I mean, are we seeing um, women dropping out of sports as a result of this in Canada, for example? What well, do you hear? It happened a long time ago. I, I hear that they do drop out, but again. If somebody walks away quietly and doesn't say anything because they're just discouraged, you never hear about it. But I did hear about it from a woman in Alberta, for example, when the trans thing happened earlier on about 10 years ago in roller derby, you know, and a lot of trans women were self-identifying into roller derby and they were welcomed and and the women were trying to be accepting. And then, of course, women just get really, really injured and they just walk away because what are you going to do? What did you expect in a roller derby? You're obviously going to get hurt. So the women didn't feel like they had any justification or any validity to their, you know, there's no point in complaining because that's the way the sport is, right? So now we're seeing it in a bonafide, like more, you know, mainstream sports starting to happen. And, you know, let me just say something about, about Leah. 
about Will Thomas. Will Thomas's previous Facebook page, I kind of took a look. And, you know, it's just nothing but um, propaganda things like Black Lives, Black Lives Matter, which, you know, I mean, just in that case, like, all, all these things about, like, like really sort of aggressive things. Uh, and then also um, uh, ACLU, and we know ACLU is completely on the gender train. So all of these things, I mean, there's almost nothing but propaganda. And it just seems like there, there could only be two reasons, truly true dysphoria, true gender dysphoria, or he's doing it to be an activist. And, um, but it doesn't even matter why, really. The fact is it's just so, so um, unethical and you know, you have to have guts, <laughs> balls to even do this. Like, you know, what normal person wants to be seen to be this unfair to women? I don't know. It's very disheartening. Hopefully, hopefully, um, you know, yeah. we're reaching an inflection point. Maybe. Um, I hope. Oh, mm-hmm. that's all we can. So that's actually all we have. Helping our cause. It's helping our cause because it's opening the eyes of the public. And I mean, now. It's been announced all over the place on Fox News, on, on all, like the high profile sports. So, right. or the high pro- profile media. So, you know, I think it's starting to make a breakthrough and people are starting to see what we've been saying now. Like at, before it was just like, oh, you ladies are just blowing this out of proportion and now we're seeing the reality. Let's hope, let's hope. Linda, thank you mm-hmm. so much as always. Thank you so much, Richard. I appreciate you having me on. Linda Blade, Cosbar's representative on sports and the co-author of Unsporting, How Trans Activism and Science Denial Are Destroying Sport. All right, that's it for me. Another one in the books. My thanks to Jody, Jacob, and Brandon. I'll be back tomorrow to do it all over again. God willing, the Brian Crombie Hour is next. Be well, find joy, hold fast, be kind, but push back. I'll speak with you tomorrow at four. Don't be late. Until then, I remain unbowed, unbent, unbroken. That's it. That's all. For more Richard Serrett Show, podcasts, blogs, and other stuff, go to saga960am.ca. Stop talking past each other and start talking with each other. We'll see you tomorrow afternoon at 4 on The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk, Saga 960am. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy.